Chapter Twenty Two of God's Country and the Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. God's Country and the Woman by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Twenty Two. Out of these dreams, he was awakened by a sound that had slowly and persistently become a part of his mental consciousness. It was a tap. Tap, tap at his window. At last he sat up and listened. It was in the grey gloom of dawn. Again the sound was repeated. Tap, tap, tap on the pane of glass. He slipped out of bed, his hand seeking the automatic under his pillow. He had slept with the window partly open. Covering it with his pistol, he called, Who is there? A runner from Jean Croisset came back a cautious voice. I have a written message for you, monsieur. He saw an arm thrust through the window, in the hand a bit of paper. He advanced cautiously until he could see the face that was peering in. It was a thin, dark, fur-hooded face, with eyes black and narrow like Jean's, a half-breed. He seized the paper, and still watching the face and arm, lighted a lamp. Not until he had read the note did his suspicion leave him. This is Pierre Langlois my friend of Pipestone, if anything should happen that you need me quickly, let him come after me. You may trust him. He will put up his teepee in the thick timber close to the dog-pit. We have fought together. Lange saved his wife from the smallpox. I am going westward. Jean. Philip sprang back to the window and gripped the mittened hand that still hung over the sill. I am glad to know you, Pierre. Is there no other word from Jean? Only the note. Okimu. You just came? Aha! My dogs and sledge are back in the forest. Listen, Philip turned toward the door. In the hall he heard footsteps. Le monsieur is awake, he said quickly to Pierre. I will see you in the forest. Scarcely were the words out of his mouth when the half-breed was gone. A moment later Philip knew that it was Adair who had passed his door. He dressed and shaved himself before he left his room. He found Adair in his study. Mitusin already had a fire burning, and Adair was standing before this alone when Philip entered. Something was lacking in Adair's greeting this morning. There was an uneasy, searching look in his eyes as he looked at Philip. They shook hands, and his hand was heavy and lifeless. His shoulders seemed to droop a little more, and his voice was unnatural when he spoke. "'You did not go to bed until quite late last night, Philip?' "'Yes, it was late, mon père.' For a moment Adair was silent, his head bowed, his eyes on the floor. He did not raise his gaze when he spoke again. "'Did you hear anything late, about midnight?' he asked. He straightened and looked steadily into Philip's eyes. "'Did you see Miriam?' For an instant Philip felt that it was useless to attempt concealment under the searching scrutiny of the older man's eyes. Like an inspiration came to him a thought of Josephine. "'Josephine was the last person I saw after leaving you,' he said truthfully. "'And she was in her room before eleven o'clock.' "'It is strange, unaccountable,' mused Adair. "'Miriam left her bed last night while I was asleep. "'It must have been about midnight, "'for it was then that the moon shines full into our window. "'In returning she awakened me, and her hair was damp. "'There was snow on her gown. "'My God, she had been outdoors, almost naked. "'She said that she must have walked in her sleep that she had awakened to find herself in the open door, with the wind and snow beating upon her. This is the first time 
I never knew her to do it before. It disturbs me. So she is sleeping now? I don't know. Josephine came a little later and said that she could not sleep. Miriam went with her. It must have been the baby, comforted Philip, placing a hand on Adair's arm. We can stand it, mon père. We are men. With them it is different. We must bear up under our grief. It is necessary for us to have strength for them as well as ourselves. Do you think it is that? cried Adair, with sudden eagerness. If it is, I am ashamed of myself, Philip. I have been brooding too much over the strange change in Miriam. But I see now, it must have been the baby. It has been a tremendous strain. I have heard her crying when she did not know that I heard. I am ashamed of myself, and the blow has been hardest on you. And Josephine, added Philip. John Adair had thrown back his shoulders, and with a deep feeling of relief, Philip saw the old light in his eyes. We must cheer them up, he added quickly. I will ask Josephine if they will join us at breakfast, mon père. He closed the door behind him when he left the room, and went at once to rouse Josephine, if she was still in bed. He was agreeably surprised to find that both Miriam and Josephine were up and dressing. With this news he returned to Adair. Three-quarters of an hour later they met in the breakfast-room. It took only a glance to tell him that Josephine was making a last heroic fight. She had dressed her hair in shining coils low over her neck and cheeks this morning, in an effort to hide her pallor. Miriam seemed greatly changed from the preceding night. Her eyes were clearer. A careful toilet had taken away the dark circles from under them, and had added a touch of color to her lips and cheeks. She went to Adair when the two men entered, and with a joyous rumble of approval, the giant held her off at arm's length and looked at her. "'It didn't do you any harm after all,' Philip heard him say. "'Did you tell Mignon of your adventure, ma He did not hear Miriam's reply, for he was looking down into Josephine's face. Her lips were smiling. She had made no effort to conceal the gladness in her eyes as he bent and kissed her. "'It was a hard night, dear.' "'Terrible,' she whispered. "'Mother told me what happened. "'She is stronger this morning. "'We must keep the truth from him.' "'The truth?' "'He felt her start. "'Hush,' she breathed. "'You know, you understand what I mean. "'Let us sit down to breakfast now.' "'During the hour that followed, "'Philip was amazed at Miriam. "'She laughed and talked as she had not done before. "'The bit of artificial colour "'she had given to her cheeks and lips "'faded under the brighter flush that came into her face. "'He could see that Josephine was nearly as surprised as himself. "'John Adair was fairly boyish in his delight. "'The meal was finished, and Philip and Adair were about to light their cigars "'when a commotion outside drew them all to the window "'that overlooked one side of the clearing. "'Out of the forest had come two dog-teams, "'their drivers shouting and cracking their long caribou-gut whips. "'Philip stared conscious that Josephine's hand was clutching his arm. Neither of the shouting men was Jean. "'An Indian, and Renault, the quarter-blood,' grunted Adair. "'Wonder what they want here in November. They should be on their trap-lines.' "'Perhaps, mon père, they have come to see their friends,' suggested Josephine. "'You know, it has been a long time since some of them have seen us. I would be disappointed if our people didn't show. They were glad because of your homecoming.' "'Of course that's it,' cried Adair. "'Ho, Metusin!' he roared, turning toward the door. "'Metusin! Patu! Ta! Wawep! Isu wan!' 
Metusin appeared at the door. "'Build a great fire in the Unaka house,' commanded Adair. "'Feed all who come in from the forest, Metusin. Open up tobacco and preserves and flour and bacon. Nothing in the storeroom is too good for them. And send Jean to me. Where is he?' "'Numa Tau, "'Gone!' exclaimed Adair. "'He didn't want to disturb you last night,' explained Philip. "'He made an early start for the pipestone. "'If he was an ordinary man, I'd say he was in love with one of the Langlois girls,' said Adair, with a shrug of his shoulders. "'Nia, Metusin, make them comfortable, and we will all see them later.' As Metusin went, Adair turned upon the others. "'Shall we all go out now?' he asked. "'Splendid!' accepted Josephine eagerly. "'Come, Mikawi, we can be ready in a moment.' She ran from the room, leading her mother by the hand. Philip and Adair followed them, and shortly the four were ready to leave the house. The Unaka, or guest-house, was in the edge of the timber. It was a long, low building of logs, and was always open with its accommodations to the Indians and half-breeds, men, women, and children, who came in from the forest trails. Reno and the Indian were helping Metusin build fires when they entered. Philip thought that Reno's eyes rested upon him in a curious and searching glance, even as Adair shook hands with him. He was more interested in the low words both the Indian and the blood muttered as they stood for a moment with bowed heads before Josephine and Miriam. Then Reno raised his head and spoke direct to Josephine. I bring word for him of Jean Bruyel and Wimamoao over on Jacques Fish, ma Kichi Utesakian, he said in a low voice. Him little girl, so sick she gone die. Little Marie, she is sick, dying, you say? cried Josephine. Aha, she ver damn sick. She burn up lake fire. Josephine looked up at Philip. I knew she was sick, she said. "'But I didn't think it was so bad. "'If she dies, it will be my fault. "'I should have gone.' "'She turned quickly to Renaud. "'When did you see her last?' she asked. "'Listen. Papek, Omao. "'Aha. "'It is a sickness the children have each winter,' she explained, "'looking questioningly into Philip's eyes again. "'It kills quickly when left alone, "'but I have medicine that will cure it. "'There is still time. We must go, Philip. We must.' Her face had paled a little. She saw the gathering lines in Philip's forehead. He thought of Jean's words, the warning they carried. She pressed his arm, and her mouth was firm. "'I am going, Philip,' she said softly. "'Will you go with me?' "'I will, if you must go,' he said. "'But it is not the best.' "'It is best for little Marie,' she retorted, and left him to tell Adair and her mother of Renaud's message. Renaud stepped close to Philip. His back was to the others. He spoke in a low voice. "'I bring good word from Jean Crusette, monsieur. Him say, something we know, good man, like Paris Langlois, and he fight like devil, when ask. I bring Indian and two team. We be in forest near Dogwitaken, where Pierre make his fire and cheapy. You understand? Aha?' "'Yes, I understand,' whispered Philip. "'And Jean has gone on to see the others?' "'He go like wind.' to francois over on waterfound francois come in one hour two three maybe josephine and adair approached them mignon is turning nurse again rumbled adair one of his great arms thrown affectionately about her waist 
You'll have a jolly run on a clear morning like this, Philip. But remember, if it is the smallpox, I forbid her to expose herself. I shall see to that, mon père. When do we start, Josephine? As soon as I can get ready, and Metusin brings the dogs, replied Josephine. I'm going to the house now. Will you come with me? It was an hour before Metusin had brought the dogs up from the pit, and they were ready to start. Philip had armed himself with a rifle and his automatic, and Josephine had packed both medicine and food in a large basket. The new snow was soft, and Metusin had brought a toboggan instead of a sledge with runners. In the traces were Captain and five of his teammates. "'Isn't the pack going with us?' Philip asked. "'I never take them when there is a very bad sickness like this,' explained Josephine. "'There is something about the nearness of death that makes them howl. I have been able to train that out of them.' Philip was disappointed, but he said nothing more. He tucked Josephine among the furs, cracked the long whip Metusin had given him, and they were off with Miriam and her husband waving their hands from the door of Adair House. They had scarcely passed out a few in the forest when, with a sudden sharp command, Josephine stopped the dogs. She sprang out of her furs and stood laughingly beside Philip. "'Father always insists that I ride. He says it's not good for a woman to run. But I do. I love to run. There!' As she spoke, she had thrown her outer coat on the sledge and stood before him, straight and slim. Her hair was in a long braid. "'Now, are you ready?' she challenged. "'Good Lord, have mercy on me,' gasped Philip. "'You look as if you might fly, Josephine.' Her signal to the dogs was so low he scarcely heard it, and they sped along the white and narrow trail into which Josephine had directed them, and Philip fell in behind her. It had always roused a certain sense of humour in him to see a woman run, but in Josephine he now saw the swiftness and lithesome grace of a fawn. Her head was thrown back. Her mittened hands were drawn up to her breast as the forest man runs, and her shining braid danced and rippled in the early sun with each quick step she took. Ahead of her, the grey and yellow backs of the dogs rose and fell with a rhythmic movement that was almost music. Their ears aslant, their crests bristling, their bushy tails curling like plumes over their hips. They responded with almost automatic precision to the low words that fell from the lips of the girl behind them. With each minute that passed, Philip wondered how much longer Josephine could keep up the pace. They had run fully a mile, and his own breath was growing shorter when the toe of his moccasined foot caught under a bit of brushwood, and he plunged head foremost into the snow. When he had brushed the snow out of his eyes and ears, Josephine was standing over him, laughing. The dogs were squatted on their haunches, looking back. "'My poor Philip,' she laughed, offering him an assisting hand. "'We almost lost you, didn't we? It was Captain who missed you first, and he almost toppled me over the sled.' Her face was radiant. Lips, eyes, and cheeks were glowing. Her breast rose and fell quickly. "'It was your fault,' he accused her. I couldn't keep my eyes off you, and never thought of my feet. I shall have my revenge. Here. He drew her into his arms, protesting. Not until he had kissed her parted, half-smiling lips did he release her. I'm going to ride now, she declared. I'm not going to run the danger of being accused again. He wrapped her again in the furs on the toboggan. It was eight miles to Jacques Brulé's, and they reached his cabin in two hours. Brulé, 
was not much more than a boy, scarcely older than the dark-eyed little French girl who was his wife, and their eyes were big with terror. With a thrill of wonder and pleasure, Philip observed the swift change in them as Josephine sprang from the toboggan. Brie was almost sobbing as he whispered to Philip, "'Oh, the sweet ange! Monsieur, she came just in time!' Josephine was bending over little Marie's cot when they followed her and the girl's mother into the cabin. In a moment she looked up with a glad smile. "'It is the same sickness, Marie,' she said to the mother. "'I have medicine here that will cure it. The fever isn't as bad as I thought it would be.' Noon saw a big change in the cabin. Little Marie's temperature was falling rapidly. Brie and his wife were happy. After dinner Josephine explained again how they were to give the medicine she was leaving, and at two o'clock they left on their return journey to Adair House. The sun had disappeared hours before. Gray banks of cloud filled the sky, and it had grown much colder. "'We will reach home only a little before dark,' said Philip. "'You had better ride, Josephine.' He was eager to reach Adair House. By this time he felt that Jean should have returned, and he was confident that there were others of the forest people besides Pierre, Renaud, and the Indian in the forest near the pit. For an hour he kept up a swift pace. Later they came to a dense cover of black spruce, two miles from Adair House. They had traversed a part of this when the dogs stopped. Directly ahead of them had fallen a dead cedar, barring the trail. Philip went to the toboggan for the trail-axe. "'I haven't noticed any wind, have you?' he asked. "'Not enough to topple over a cedar.' He went to the tree and began cutting. Scarcely had his axe fallen half a dozen times when a scream of terror turned him about like a flash. He had only time to see that Josephine had left the sledge and was struggling in the arms of a man. In that same instance, two others had leaped upon him, he had not time to strike, to lift his axe. He went down, a pair of hands gripping at his throat. He saw a face over him, and he knew now that it was the face of the man he had seen in the firelight, the face of Lang, the free trader. Every atom of strength in him rose in a superhuman effort to throw off his assailants. Then came the blow. He saw the club over him, a short, thick club, in the hand of Thoreau himself. After that followed darkness and oblivion, punctuated by the crack, crack, crack of a revolver, and the howling of dogs, sounds that grew fainter and fainter until they died away altogether, and he sank into the stillness of night. It was almost dark when consciousness stirred Philip again. With an effort he pulled himself to his knees and stared about him. Josephine was gone, the dogs were gone. He staggered to his feet a moaning cry on his lips. He saw the sledge. Still in the traces lay the bodies of two of the dogs, and he knew what the pistol shots had meant. The others had been cut loose. Straight out into the forest led the trails of several men, and the meaning of it all, the reality of what had happened, surged upon him in all its horror. Lang and his cutthroats had carried off Josephine. He knew by the thickening darkness that they had time to get a good start on their way to Thoreau's. One thought filled his dizzy brain now. He must reach Jean and the camp near the pit. He staggered as he turned his face homeward. At times the trail seemed to reach up and strike him in the face. There was a blinding pain back of his eyes. 
A dozen times in the first mile he fell, and each time it was harder for him to regain his feet. The darkness of night grew heavier about him, and now and then he found himself crawling on his hands and knees. It was two hours before his day's senses caught the glow of a fire ahead of him. Even then it seemed like an age before he reached it. And when at last he staggered into the circle of light, he saw half a dozen startled faces, and he heard the strange cry of Jean-Jacques Croisset as he sprang up and caught him in his arms. Philip's strength was gone, but he still had time to tell Jean what had happened before he crumpled down into the snow. And then he heard a voice, Jean's voice, crying fierce commands to the men about the fire. He heard excited replies, the hurry of feet, the barking of dogs. Something warm and comforting touched his lips. He struggled to bring himself back to life. He seemed to have been fighting hours before he opened his eyes. He pulled himself up, stared into the dark, livid face of Jean, the half-breed. "'The hour has come,' he murmured. "'Yes, the hour has come, monsieur,' cried Jean. "'The swiftest teams and the swiftest runners in this part of the Northland are on the trail.' and by morning the forest people will be roused from here to the water-found, from the Cree camp on Lobstick to the Grey Loon waterway. Drink this, monsieur. There is no time to lose, for it is Jean-Jacques Croisset who tells you that not a wolf will howl this night that does not call forth the signal to those who love our Josephine. Drink. End of chapter 22